Welcome to My Favorite Mystic, a podcast about the weird and wonderful world of mysticism. I'm AJ Langley, and today I'm joined by Joseph Lombard. He's Associate Professor of Quranic Studies in the College of Islamic Studies at Hamad bin Khalifa University, Doha, and the host of the podcast, The Quran for All Seasons. Joseph, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, AJ. So today you're here to speak to us about Ahmed al-Ghazali. Yes. But before we talk about him, can you tell us a little bit more about you? How did you become interested in mysticism as a field of study? I kind of call myself an accidental academic because I just kept on, you know, studying and I was like, oh, I get to study more books. And oh, like if I apply to this and they give me a grant, then I just get to keep studying and writing about what I'm studying. And so, I mean, I just really kind of kept going with the flow. And then all of a sudden I had a PhD and I had to get a job. You know, during that course, what's always really interested me is, shall we say, those people who are oriented towards the inner dimension of the religion towards the relationship between the seen world and the unseen world. This has been a fascination of mine uh, since I was probably 10 or 12 years old. And so it just ended up uh, extending into this kind of academic arena where I get to keep studying it. Now, I'm also really interested in near-death experiences because these are ways in which people seem to engage and, shall we say, bring back news from the other side. That's a really interesting connection. I hadn't thought of that before. So were these near-death experiences, were they the first thing that got you kind of interested in mysticism? Actually, my original interest came from scripture in the passages of the Bible, and I can't even remember them now, which allude to there being something beyond that penetrates into our daily lives that we can experience. And then, I mean, really my uh, gateway was my own experiences of just intuitions of there being something beyond. And I mean, interestingly, when I was around 19 years old, a very good friend of mine died in a car accident. And somehow that activated within me a more serious interest in this. And at that time, I remember meeting mystics such as um, Meister Eckhart, the book, The Cloud of Unknowing, and Maximus the Confessor in the Christian tradition. Maximus has always been one of my favorites, but my father had a great love for Thomas Merton. And I was also you know, very interested in Thomas Merton because I felt like combined with his spiritual insights, with his critique of, shall we say, the contemporary condition, I found very engaging. And how did you go from there to working on Sufism and the Quran? Well, you know, the thing is, is I really was very open to working on, when I was in my studies, I was interested in Hinduism. I was interested in Judaism and, and uh, Kabbalah for a little while. Um, I was interested in uh, in Christianity and Christian mysticism. And in many ways, it's just because uh, one of the best teachers where I went to undergrad and then did my MA, the George Washington University was Sayyid Hussein Nasser. And Sufism is one of his areas of specialization. And so in some ways, it's just because I accumulated more knowledge in that particular area that it seemed like the logical one to continue to progress with in terms of my own studies. Also, I found I had a lot of avenues open for studying Arabic and Persian at the time. So I just kind of went in that direction. It's amazing how many people come on here and say that they have no idea how they really got into mysticism, they completely stumbled into it, and that most of the time it's about a really good teacher. A lot of it is. A lot of it is about good teachers, and sometimes it's just about finding, you know, a, a great book. And in, in some ways, you know, my father was always uh, interested in this. Uh, Evelyn Underhill was also one of his loves when he read a lot of her and a lot of Thomas Merton. And, you know, I, I inherited all of these books when he passed away. And so it's a combination of the two. 
It's really nice that you have that connection to your father and that you had that shared interest. That's really wonderful. Let's talk now about the man of the hour, Ahmed al-Ghazali. What can you tell us about him? All right, so Ahmed al-Ghazali, he's you know, usually known as the younger brother of Abu Hamad al-Ghazali. So Abu Hamad al-Ghazali is one of the most influential intellectuals in the history of Islam. But in terms of Sufism, Ahmed al-Ghazali was far more influential than his brother. He himself was a Sufi sheikh. And the time period that we're talking about here is the 6th Islamic century, the 12th century of the Common Era, or shall we say AD, I like my colonialism blatant. So he is known particularly for a book called the Savaneh, which is written in Persian, which means like kind of allusions or aspirations, um, or it could even be inspirations. But in this book, what he does is it's really the first time in Islam that you have the complete flowering of a metaphysics of love, in which the whole of creation, the whole of reality, and the whole of the spiritual path is understood as an unfolding of absolute ultimate love. Not God's love, but God is love. The absolute is love. We're not even going to use the name God, in a sense, in the way that it's often phrased. And so there's this kind of interplay of lover and beloved that is going on actually in every single interaction within the whole of the cosmos. But the way that this is unfolding within the human being is, shall we say, a particularly concentrated form of love when the actual purpose of the human being is the full realization of love within this journey through the created order. And how is this love characterized in the text? Avid listeners will know that we've talked about lots of mystics who have love in their works, and it ranges from quite sweet and hopeful and lovely to quite abusive and restrictive and painful. So what does love look like for Ahmed al-Ghazali? There are passages in the Savane where he does speak of the pain of love, but that's not the focus. And the concept of the deprivation, there is not a concept where you have to do things where you are depriving yourself. And in terms of how that love is manifest in other things, this is actually an interesting debate within what we could call, some people refer to it as the school of love in Persian Sufism. And there are some mystics within that school who say that the love of anything else is not something that you should necessarily pursue because it cannot really be as full as that love for the absolute. But there are others who actually see every love relationship as a manifestation of that love for the absolute or a manifestation of that absolute love. And this actually gets into something that, that you find in the Persian tradition that has scandalized a lot of people. It's called Shahid Bazi, which is like witnessing beauty and being dedicated to witness beauty. Because actually what would happen is, is that there are these people who would talk about witnessing beauty in the perfect youth. And so we're talking about a 12, 13-year-old boy, which sounds very scandalous. But it actually ends up that it's a whole unfolding metaphysics of how you can actually recognize that everything 
is a manifestation of God's beauty. And if you are at a point where you've realized that love deeply enough within yourself or that connection, then you can actually experience that love for all things untainted by your own passions and desires. And in a sense, almost your desire is a manifestation of love's desire. So that's a debate that happens. He falls on the side of your love for other things can't possibly even come close to the love for God, God's self. But there are others like Shahid al-Din Kirmani and, uh, and Ruzbihan Bakli who side with it's actually everything is a way of experiencing that ultimate love of the divine. Everything is the form, is the manifestation of love itself. Okay, so that's a little bit about his work. Do we know much about him as a person, other than the fact that he had a more famous older brother? Oh, well, we know we know a lot. And, you know, we know a lot in part because we know a lot about uh, his brother's biography. Uh, we know that they were both orphaned. And actually, it's said that they went to the madrasa and they got a good education because they actually needed to be well-fed. And in those days, the madrasa was a good place for an orphan to go in order to be taken care of. And so they went to the madrasa and then they ended up, both of them, excelling uh, in their studies. And they traveled to various parts within what is present-day Iran to meet with various teachers. Their place where they were was in Tus, which is in kind of northwestern Iran, near the present-day city of Meshhad. And then as they rose in their studies, Abu Hamad al-Ghazali in particular was noticed by the leading minister, shall we say education minister, Nizam al-Mulk of the day. And he rose to become the very top academic at the Nizamiya Madrasa. And so he became the top academic. He was known throughout the world. People would come there just to study with him. And Abu Hamad al-Ghazali had a spiritual crisis. And because of that crisis, he said he couldn't teach anymore. And then he kind of stole away. He pretended to be making arrangements to go on Hajj, and he left his position for good. Now, when he left his position, some people say that Ahmed al-Ghazali came and taught in his stead for a few months. But what's really interesting here is there ends up being this thing that happens. In Islam, we have this huge tradition of biographical dictionaries. And we have like biographies of every single scholar and multiple biographies. But what you see in these biographies of the two brothers is that there ends up being this almost kind of debate about Sufism. And they come up saying it comes up later on in the tradition. You know, first we just have here was Ahmed al-Ghazali. But then later on, we're talking about like around the 14th, 15th century. All of a sudden, these biographies start showing Ahmed al-Ghazali as being the catalyst for his brother's spiritual crisis that he said things to him, like some say, you know, oh, there's a famous one that says, oh, whetstone, how will you let others but not let yourself be wedded? Basically being like, you're helping sharpen others' blades, but you're not going anywhere on the spiritual path yourself. And some say that it was this that made Abu Hamad al-Ghazali realize that all of his words were nothing next to the ultimate reality that he truly sought. Now, whether or not that happened, uh, it probably didn't, considering how many different stories there are. But nonetheless, it becomes this trope to represent the superiority of the mystic way over, shall we say, the way of books, of book learning. Um, and this, I, this is, becomes a major issue, actually, within the whole Islamic tradition of what they call al-ilm al-ladun, 
knowledge that comes directly from the divine presence versus the knowledge that comes through study and acquisition. And so the two brothers become this kind of model for how that plays out during certain stages in the debate within Islamic civilization. That is a large and unexpected reaction to one guy giving his brother a hard time about wanting to read books. It causes a seismic shift in, uh, in Islamic history, really, in a sense. Uh, if we are to believe, you know, nobody knows. There's debates about exactly what happened. But it's not so much about book learning. It's about where, where are you putting your emphasis? And also it's like, oh, so, you know, you're sitting here. You're the big scholar at the Nizamiya Madrasa. Hey, man, you're the big scholar at Harvard. But what's going to happen to you when you die? And that's the real emphasis, you know, and this is part of the whole Islamic tradition. I mean, the Quran, as some have said, that the Quran is like a book of the dead. The Quran is really, if you want to sum up the Quran, it's you're going to die, get ready. That's a real quick way. You're going to die. You're going to meet God. You're going to be judged for how you lived in this life. Get ready. And so the whole of the mystical path is, okay, how do we get ready? And then, so to go on after this, it's after this point when Ahmad al-Ghazali was in Baghdad and became the head of the Nizamiya Madrasa for a few years, or the, was lecturing there for some say six months, some say two years. Not really important for our story here. But then after that, he becomes an itinerant preacher and he's moving all around various parts of what is present day Iran and you know, just going kind of preaching in these various towns. And he even had. Now, some of the members of the Seljuk family, the Seljuks were the leaders within, you know, kind of Iran and, and Iraq and part of what is modern day Turkey at that time. And uh, he even had several of them are reported to have been his disciples. So uh, he had, had an in uh, with the leaders of his day. Uh, and then he had several influential disciples uh, as well. Among them, Ayn Hamadani whose works themselves became some of the most widely read mystical works in the Indian subcontinent in particular, and particularly his book called the Tamhidat, which is like kind of steps along the way or paving the way, and several others, like the Suhrawardiya Sufi order, which became one of the most influential in Islamic history. You know, Umar Suhrawardi was said to have been a disciple of Ahmad al-Ghazali. So there are many of what we call these silsilas, or chains of spiritual initiation that trace back to Ahmad al-Ghazali after his time. More importantly in his influence is actually the book, the Sabaneh, because like I said before, it really was the first flowering of a full-fledged metaphysics of love. There are certainly books before it that you see parts of it, you see pieces of it here, you see it emerging here and then going back under, emerging here and going back under, but then all of a sudden, the first kind of full textual representation of it comes with the Savane. And after that, it's like a watershed event. There is basically, this becomes the way that spirituality is conceptualized within the Persian literary tradition. So what kind of genre or style does he use to convey these ideas? How is the work written? So it's interesting, actually, this is where in, in the Sabonich, so if you've read a lot of works of mystics, you know that there are several kinds. Some are almost manuals. Okay, this is what you do, and this is what you do, and here's what you do when that happens, and here's what you do when that happens. And if you're not doing this, this is going to happen. Now, he doesn't write like that. The Sabonich is more like, you might say, meditations that you would write for advanced spiritual disciples. 
that they could then read on that and meditate upon that. And in meditating upon that, understand many of the illusions, they're called isharat in Islamic tradition, many of the illusions within it in order to help them penetrate deeper into their own meditations, into their own spiritual practice. So that's the way. And so, you know, exactly what order even the, the chapters of it were in, we're not exactly sure. Uh, they're all kind of put together later on. There is a coherence in how they are arranged. Whoever arranged them in the order that we now have them understood the text very well. But then he has another book called, you know, Atajrid fi Kalimat Tawheed. And this is a really interesting title because a tajrid can be kind of like a prospectus. So a prospectus regarding the declaration of divine unity. But a tajrid can also mean to disengage. So disengage from the world. So it's the manner in which you disengage by invoking the declaration of Tawheed, which is la ilaha illallah, there is no God but God. And so he actually, in this book, it's still not as systematic as other mystical texts one might encounter, but it's more systematic. And he talks about the various stages of the path. And he talks about how, you know, in, in the early stages, your nefs or your, your soul is dark or inclines more to darkness. And so you need to follow this regimen and you need to invoke the formula, la ilaha illallah, no God, but God, because that is what helps the light of but God to overcome the darkness of no God. And then as you've gone through that, then you are able to start invoking the divine name, Allah, 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 as there's more light within you. And then as that completely overcomes and you become closer to the essence itself, to the divine, you can just invoke Hua, Hua, which is literally just like saying He, He, because some consider Hua to be a divine name since it's used often in, in the Quran as who Allah, he is God. And this, and then he walks through that. And in that text, he talks about you know, the pitfalls of the path. He talks about the different types of people on the path and the different ways. It's still not as systematic as others. And it still is a text that's very much designed for advanced disciples along the way. We also have a collection of his majalis, which would be the sessions in which he was sitting with people and people were asking him questions. In those majalis, he also gives particular instructions at times. So for example, there's a time when he gives instruction about how to engage in the spiritual retreat, which is a famous part of Sufism, of you know, how long should one be in total isolation and what one should invoke and do during that period of total isolation and things along these lines. So out of all of his writing, the instructions that he gives, his metaphysics on love, what aspect or theme of his work do you find the most engaging? I think that the idea of all is love and everything is love and everything is an unfolding of love. I mean, I, I mentioned to you earlier about near-death experiences, but this is interesting. I mean, this is one of the things that a lot of people report about near-death experiences which is that they felt this overwhelming love. And it's interesting because one of the things that you also get from those is that people say, well, you could use the word God, but that word has become so loaded down with ideology and definitions that it doesn't suffice. And this is almost one of the things that Ahmed al-Ghazali is saying, you know, when he's saying ishq, 
is the word that they use in the Persian tradition, ish, which is absolute kind of all-encompassing love. And this absolute all-encompassing love, it, it is everything. That particular idea stands out. One of the great difficulties that I actually had, you know, I did my dissertation on Ahmed al-Ghazali, and one of the things is that a lot of times he's telling you, you actually shouldn't be engaging in writing a dissertation. <laughs> you need to be invoking, you need to get ready. I mean, the ultimate thing that really comes through is you need to take care of moving towards God right here, right now, because that's it. That's everything. You're going to die and you might die tomorrow and you might die this minute. You need to be ready for that particular moment. That moment is everything. You get this in his majalis. You get this in the tajrif, kerimat tawhid and you get this in the Savane, in his Persian writings. And we have a few Persian letters that are attributed to him. And I think they're probably by him because they have the same style and the same emphasis. I mean, isn't doing a PhD hard enough without the material itself telling you you should quit? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it really is. Um, but, you know, that, that's one of the things that came through. And I mean, it's, you know, there's these words attributed to Thomas Aquinas that it said that he was asked about his writings when he was on his deathbed. And he said, it's all straw for the fire. And, you know, that is one of the things that really came through readily with it. And so I'm like, okay, here is my poultry contribution to the fire of the world that will burn away as we go into the greater beyond. So does he ever write about his own experiences? Yeah, yeah, this is actually an interesting thing that comes up in the Persian Sufi tradition. There's a lot of stories about experiences. And there's one story where somebody's like, he goes in, like he, he starts on the path, he takes initiation, and he goes in, he, and he starts invoking, and he has like these visions and everything. And he's like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And he goes, and he's excited, and he tells the sheikh. You know, he's like, hey, this is what happened. And the sheikh's just like, oh, don't worry. You'll get over that. <laughs> and so, but this comes out over and over again. And he, so he doesn't really focus on the visions and experiences that you have. But it's this idea that it's not about your experiences. Your experiences are actually, and he gets into the very subtle discussion of, you might say, the psychology of the transformation of the heart. Um, you know, a cooked heart. That you really need a cooked heart. The raw heart is going to see all of these visions, but the cooked heart is going, these realities will be integrated into it. And so will not appear as these passing images that dance across it. And so, you know, it really is this process that you want the heart to get fully cooked, in a sense. And all of these visions that you might have in that process, they're not important, actually. One person's going to have one, one person's going to have another. Some of them will move you along. Some of them might actually lead you off the spiritual path itself because you'll start to get focused on that particular vision and on that reality. And, and or you might, your ego might think that this means that you've done something wonderful and great. So a lot of these could actually be there to be things that test you, take you to the side. But really, it's really about your sincerity is to continue to follow on that path. So there's nothing but God. There's no visions. There's no nothing. It's just love. So what is the end goal for Ahmed al-Ghazali then in terms of if you could die at any moment and you need to get ready and you need to prepare, what are they working towards? 
what you're working towards is the complete realization of love. And the way that he expresses it is that it's going to be that the duality of lover and beloved become subsumed in love itself. All the images and experiences that we have come from the duality and interplay of lover and beloved in multiple different ways. But the ultimate reality of love that is beyond that. And then you'll see everything. You'll understand everything as this interplay of lover and beloved. And so in a sense, you know, at that point, the will that one has, you know, one could say that your will some express it as your will is completely surrendered to, here we could say, the will of absolute love. But really, actually, what it is is that your will is completely subsumed within that will. You don't have a will anymore, that you are nothing. And in the Islamic mystical tradition, the word for the aspirant on the path, one is murid, the seeker, but another is the faqiyah, the one who is poor. But the reason that you use the word poor is because it's the idea that when one has completely emptied themselves of all otherness, then the light of divine love can shine purely and completely within and through one's being. So one has emptied themselves of the world in order to almost be, I mean, it sounds cheesy to say it, but almost a conduit by fully realizing that you are part of this, then you become a means by which that love is more fully manifest in the world and by which others can move towards that love. I don't know why I'm still always so surprised when there are such clear and blatant parallels between the works that appear on this podcast. It makes me so happy seeing people from different traditions and different time periods discussing things in such similar ways. I don't know why, but it just delights me. For me, this is one of those things how when you see those parallels, I mean, you take these Christian mystics, you take the Muslim mystics who are doing this, who they definitely did not read each other. And then you take these things that you have in near-death experiences. You even take things that you have within the Hindu tradition. And that's what says to me, yeah, this is real. This is something that's happening across these traditions as part of the human experience. And all of these traditions are, you might almost say, different ways of guiding us towards that complete experience of ultimate reality. So with all of the mystics that you have studied and come across in your research and your writing, why did you choose Ahmed al-Ghazali to talk about today? Uh, well, I know more about him than any other mystic. <laughs> okay, well, that's fair. So, you know, I'm an academic with an ego, so I still have to appear knowledgeable. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I think that it's because of that. I mean, academically, I'm very interested in him. In terms of, you might say, my own life trajectory, there are multiple mystics in whom I'm deeply interested. I mean, his disciple, Ayn Zat Hamadani, if I had to do it over again, I might actually do my work on Ayn Zat. Because the, actually, the reason I chose Ahmed at the time, Ahmed, there were some works. There are a lot of other works that are attributed to him that turned out not to be his. And in terms of the Western academic tradition, I'm the first person to have said, ah, no, actually, he didn't write that. No, actually, he didn't write that. No, he didn't write that. Um, and to give explanations. And so I was actually kind of disappointed in some of the stuff. Because, you know, that I was talking about, like, some of these texts have this whole metaphysics of poverty, where they talk about how everything 
the reality of everything is the degree to which it has poverty towards the absolute. But that turned out not to be his. <laughs> but Ayn al-Ghazat Hamadani, and now one of my good friends, Dr. Mohammed Rostam of Carleton College uh, in Canada, he's bringing out a new book called In Rushes of the Spirit, which is on Ayn al-Ghazat, uh, and translating some of Ayn al-Ghazat's works into English. But yeah, Ayn al-Ghazat actually takes a lot of the things that Ahmad al-Ghazali writes about and writes about the same things, but also in more detail in the Tamhidat in, in particular. So, I mean, I might have chosen him within that tradition. Uh, but, you know, I, I also, I really incline to these works that are themselves kind of written from the position of having that relationship or that uh, manifestation of that reality itself within an individual rather than being a didactic manual of some kind. And so that's one of the reasons why, you know, the Savane is, for me, uh, an absolute pleasure. It comes through in his Atajri, which I'm about to publish a translation of. Um, it comes through uh, in that as well. But that, for me, that's the type of expression to which I incline. And there are, there are multiple mystics, as we call them, for whatever value that word has. <laughs> we, we can problematize that as well. But there are multiple authors within the Persian Sufi tradition, the Madhabi Ishq, the school of love, that are writing with this kind of same fire, like Fakhardin Iraqi, uh, his book, The Lama'at, which he says is written in the style of Ahmed Al-Ghazali Sabani. I mean, that also is a remarkable text. One of those ones that you're reading it and he says, oh my God, I got to stop reading and I got to go pray. <laughs> I think that it's really admirable that you've stuck by him for so long when, as an academic, he would not have stuck by you. <laughs> <laughs> well, inshallah, hopefully, uh, hopefully it'll weigh in my favor in the balance at the end. That is all we can really hope for. Yeah. Speaking of the end, we are reaching the end of the podcast. So I wanted to ask you before you go, could you tell us a little bit about your podcast, The Quran for All Seasons? Uh, so Quran for All Seasons is uh, kind of uh, an effort to bring out a podcast that uses multiple dimensions of the classical Islamic tradition. So it's not bound to people from any one school to reflect upon, you might say, the inner lessons of Quranic verses in a contemporary voice. And that's probably not even doing it justice. A lot of people have difficulty relating to the Quran in the ways that it's taught. And so this is trying to cut through and distill a lot of the dimensions that people can relate to and put them together into a narrative and share that both with an, a Muslim audience and a non-Muslim audience so that people who have no experience of the Quran can actually see what does this mean for Muslims? What are the life lessons within this? What are the major themes uh, of the Quran that come through? I found that with all the different podcasts out there, there wasn't anything that was doing that. And I actually had several people who were encouraging me to do a podcast of some kind because I've got a great face for podcasting. <laughs> uh, no, I said they said like my voice, like I had the voice of a of a, of a narrator or something. So uh, they were encouraging me to do that. So I decided to give it a try, and you know, this far I'm I'm enjoying it. You know, as a podcaster, it's something that kind of takes on a life of its own, and then you just kind of like it, the art of it. Um, becomes something that is uh, that is enticing, and it becomes a way to be creative within an arena, academia, 
that is often stifling our creative dimensions. Well, thank you for coming here and exercising those creative dimensions. There is a link to The Crayon for All Seasons in the show notes. Please check it out. And Joseph, thank you so much for joining me today and for telling me all about Ahmed Al-Ghazali. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me, AJ. I, I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope I've done some, uh, some small justice for Ahmed Al-Ghazali and uh, the Persian School of Love. Absolutely. It was wonderful to have you. And thank you all for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at MyFaveMystic and please share the podcast if you're enjoying it. But most importantly, join me next time when I speak to Samantha Slaba about Dusseline Dedenya.